Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, starring Robert England, Lisa Wilcox, and Danny Hassel. Screenplay by Brian Helgeland and Ken, Ken and Jim Wheat, and directed by Rennie Harlan. Those are some names, right, Matt? Mm-hmm. Can I read you Brian uh, Helgeland, yeah. uh, his uh, little filmography? Sure. This was his first movie. So good start. Good little start there. Uh, then uh, in 1997, he writes a little film called L.A. Confidential. I've heard of that. Wins the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Oh, good. Conspiracy Theory, The Postman, Payback, A Knight's Tale. Uh, Mystic River, Ugh. Man on Fire, The Taking of Pelham 123, Cirque du Freak, The Vampire's Assistant, Green Zone, Robin Hood, uh, 42, The Jackie Robinson Story. This is a pretty accomplished screenwriter here. It's weird about that. I would say very accomplished mm-hmm. and very accomplished with kind of bad, bad films. Yeah. Some of those, there's a couple good ones in there. Do you like LA Confidential? I love it. Noirish, that, yeah. That's that's a masterpiece. Do you like Mystic River? I hate it. Okay. I would love to do that on the show someday. I think I we think could do a whole Boston like a whole Boston thing. <laughs> do that in like the town and something else. Well, that's uh, a good idea. Yeah. The Departed. Yeah. Um <laughs> I kind of like Mystic River, but uh, Yeah, that's not actually that'd be a good cast, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Some of that stuff in there is really tell them Pelham one, two, three is okay, but well, it looks like he, he started- must be fast or something because that's a lot of work for not a ton of hits. Looked like he started teaming up with Clint Eastwood and then uh, Tony Scott and then um, Ridley Scott uh, towards because uh, was that Green Zone and uh, I never uh, saw the, that. Did you see the Green Robin Zone? Hood? No, yeah. no Green Zone. That's Paul Greengrass. It was right. like it's like the Born Wannabe movie. Yeah. And then Rennie, Rennie Harlan. Let's talk about him. So this was his first. Uh, oh no, actually not. It wasn't it was his second movie? Um, but after this, gets Die Hard two. Uh, and then follows that up with, I believe, Cliffhanger, mm-hmm. and then Cutthroat Island, and we can talk about that later. Um, but still kind of brings it back. Deep Blue Sea, uh, that Sylvester Stallone indie car movie, Driven, which I is a guilty pleasure of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he's had himself a little career, too. Well, to all of the careers, I guess, that have been spawned from some version of a Nightmare series. Exactly. Welcome back to Rice Smile Film. That's our little intro on the players here, but uh, let's reintroduce you to the Fearsome Four. Uh, we did Friday and Jason, Camp Crystal Lake last week with the final chapter. And here we are. We're back in Dreamland with A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. Uh, can't wait to talk about this one with you and just uh, just kind of the general gist of it all. Um, we're having some more of the Davis uh, County Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey finished in oak casks. Uh, so mm, cheers to you. Cheers to you. That's a good choice, Jesse. You did good in this bottle. Again, that like forty to fifty dollar range is kind of a, a good little sweet spot. Yeah, we've done like before. I remember I bought a, a bottle of Booker's and it came in that like cabinet with the little glass. I think that was like almost like ninety dollars, and it was. I didn't think it was very good. Yeah, um, it's it's a good little range uh, to to be in here, but uh, we got a ton to talk about today. So let's go ahead and dive right into our flight question.
This film has a pretty interesting little soundtrack from Tuesday Night, who's an actor, actress in this film, to Go West, Sinead O'Connor, Blondie. Dramarama. Yeah. Uh, the Fat Boys at the end of this thing. This is like peak 1988 soundtrack. I want to talk about that, too, because I think in some similarities, the soundtrack to this film was similar to the one last week in that it's almost totally legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely want to talk about the Sinead O'Connor track and that drama-rama class or that drama-rama tune. But as I'm doing right now, it set us, this movie set us up, I think, for what's the inevitable comparison. Now the comparison for us in here and this time is Nightmare and Friday and Halloween. But I wanted to take that comparison and step it back in time a little bit and think about the other three. So, I mean, that's Universal's big three originally. Wolfman, Dracula, and Frankenstein. You can make the case that both of these series of three have had dramatic impacts on the world of filmmaking. So my question to you is, I don't know if there's a yes or no or right or wrong on this, or winner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which of the bigger three do you think has had a larger influence on contemporary film. It doesn't even have to be horror. It can be outside the world of horror, just film in general. So we're talking about Universal's Big Three, The Wolfman, Dracula, and Frankenstein versus Freddy, Jason, and Michael. Well, the easy answer is the Universal Monsters, right? He started there, maybe? Because you look at those films coming out in the early 30s, the early 40s, and all the guys that ended up making all of these 70s, 80s horror films from Carpenter to Landis to Joe Dante. They all grew up on that stuff, right? Uh, You can, there's stuff written and interviews and documentaries about them talking about those monsters like at nauseum about how much they they went to see them and it like changed their lives forever. Mm -hmm. So that's the easy answer, right? Is that those early universal monsters helped influence the filmmakers that made these films we're talking about in this cast here. Mm -hmm. But... In terms of staying power mm-hmm. and longevity and influencing into today, right? I think I have to pick these sets of films. I think I got to pick Michael, Jason, and Freddie. And uh, I'll explain a little bit more, but why don't you give me your quick take? For me, it's which way do you want to approach it? If you want to approach it from an entertainment perspective, that is quality entertainment... I think Universal for me is ahead. Yeah. If you're looking at it from what drives the contemporary market, sadly, that's the dollar signs. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to argue with the house that Freddie built being included in this insofar as... He built the whole studio. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Miramax. No, you like. I I had to do it because we do it every week. (laughs) Every time it comes up. Right. And in contemporary filmmaking, I think, sadly, story often takes a backseat to bottom line. Yeah. So that's the wrong reason that I would want this to be the leader. Mm-hmm. But to me, as much as I hate this sort of honesty, yeah, I think they're more successful because you can also make the case that original Friday, original Halloween, and original um, Nightmare... Mm. We're made on a fairly small budget. Yeah, very small. Much the same way the three monster films were made on a very small budget. Mm-hmm. So they both start from humble beginnings. Yeah. 
Now, they both turned out multiple sequels, yeah. which spoke to the return of a loyal audience to a subject matter they found to be compelling or interesting. Yeah. The thing that changes for me with the big three, this contemporary, Freddie, Michael, and Jason, is they could turn one of these out for 17 to 25 would probably be a huge budget. Mm-hmm. And by the time it finished at the Blockbuster store or DVD sales, it was way o- and, and abroad. Yeah. It was over $150 million. Mm-hmm. That's not including all the merchandise. Yeah. $2 million into 150 is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. That speaks to like what drives the contemporary market, sadly. Yeah. Now, I'll give it back to you because I have a devil's advocate argument to my own case yeah. where that market's really important for other stuff that we like, but I'm going to give it back to you and see where you want to take that. Well, really Are we both in agreement then it's the, it's the big, the, the new big three. Are we both agreeing sort of right now? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the universal monsters I think are just so pivotal uh, in general because not only did they help a uh, kind of a fledgling startup studio itself, universal, right? 1931, uh, Dracula and, and Frankenstein, like who who would have thought that the, those particular monsters would have been like such huge hits, right? Mm-hmm. That they could keep churning out more. And then the idea of a sequel, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein, we're doing a second Frankenstein movie that was unheard of back then. <laughs> like, right. And then when you get into the 40s, and I told you this last week that I recently went through all the Universal Mummy films. So the original Boris Karloff, and that was 32, I believe, 33 and then they didn't do Mummy's Hand, the sequel, until 40. So there was a seven-year gap there. But then they turned out like four of those movies in the span of like three years. With Lon Chaney Jr. now as the role of Karis the Mummy and not Emotep. And they're wildly entertaining. I told you they clock in at just 60 minutes. Yeah. It's you, it's shorter than an episode of Game of Thrones or, or just or Breaking mm-hmm. Bad or whatever, right? There's probably more action. Yeah, and... They get right to the point. They're so schlocky and they're so kind of cheaply made, but there's there's such a charm to those. But they made sequels before anyone else did. They they influenced. And isn't it kind of just kind of apt that like that was like digestible entertainment during World War II when all the news you're getting back is all this horrible stuff going on overseas in the Pacific and in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. But people cannot get enough of these monsters, right? the Wolfman and all the Frankenstein sequels and Dracula's daughter and son of Dracula and the Claude Rains, uh, all the invisible man stuff. That's wildly interesting to me is just like, that's when they were at their peak. Like they, they, like they started in the thirties, but then in the forties is when they like really turned them out. Mm -hmm. And I just got to really appreciate that. I mean, that that's, it's kind of my introduction into horror. I think it's a very palatable for a child to, if you want something that's spooky, I mean, it's not going to stick with you long lasting. Not like Halloween, which definitely left an imprint on me in kind of a not not a good way. Like I had nightmares for weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's a great entry point. I, I still think it is. Uh, if you can get over the black and white, which I know is becoming ever more the barrier for contemporary audiences, right? You can sit down for 60 minutes and watch a movie. It's three episodes of Seinfeld, everyone. I mean, you can, yeah. you can do it. And uh, you're right. They're wildly entertaining. Yeah, you're right. I have two things about this. One is uh, an anterior hypothesis or an ulterior hypothesis. And then I have a change in the question I want to throw at you. If my vote goes to the modern big three, simply based on the bottom line and the revenue that they generate, 
in the very snobby way that I can sometimes be sit back and cross my arms and say, well, it's just in it for the, the, the dollars yeah. and just, and that's not to say that there's not something enjoyable about just going and watching a movie and eating some popcorn and not having to analyze it. Yeah. But when nightmare turns out 125 on 25, mm-hmm. that 125, 40 of it goes to making some independent thing mm-hmm. that allows me to appreciate spec and ideas that maybe aren't adapted and aren't so quite tentpole high concept. Yeah. So as much as I might chagrin and say, and I do have a lot to say about this with this nightmare film that we're going to get into tonight. Mm-hmm. And not, not, that's not me letting the cat out of the bag, whether it's good or bad. I'm not, that's not that. There's a lot of discussion to be had about this for me. It enables the financing of all the stuff that's not summer or holiday season I'll give, content. I'll give you a great example of that too. Um, Blumhouse is yeah. the, the titan of horror right now, right? Which by the way, they have a new logo. Mm. Uh, so before the movie, because it, it was before Halloween ends. And did you do it yet? I did. Okay. Uh, we can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. You have to watch it in slow motion because there's little Easter eggs in this logo of all their past films. That's cool. So like Michael Myers is in it. There's a video camera in there from Paranormal Activity. Uh, the demon Darth Maul thing from Insidious. There's a snare drum in there from mm. Whiplash. And that's where I'm coming to with that is that like whiplash is funded off of like paranormal activity money. Right. right. Yeah. Yes. A little spec indie movie that like no one would probably be like, ah, do we really want to make a movie about a cantankerous jazz conductor? We got a lot of paranormal activity money we're sitting on. So why not? Let's mm-hmm. take Jason Blum, uh, takes a chance on something like that. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it pays off dividends because you and I would put that in probably our top five of the last 30 years. I might make top 10 ever. Yeah. I might make top seven ever, mm-hmm. which probably means it's number seven on the it's list. It's number seven, exactly. <laughs> top eight, so you, there's some mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. We love that. Mm-hmm. Something that you can make that gives a new vision, a new voice, enough to do something properly. It doesn't have to be as gorilla as like the original Halloween was, which it still worked. Yeah. But enough of a studio machine to where Carpenter gets to make the thing mm-hmm. and doesn't get beat by E.T. because... They were too stupid to not release it the same weekend. But nonetheless, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And like whiplash is a perfect example. Yeah. Let me change one word in that question to see if it changes your answer. Okay. If I ask you the same question Mm -hmm. and I remove the word contemporary and just say film, Mm -hmm. does the answer change? For me, the answer is yes on that. It might. And I would say for me, the answer changes. Well, I asked you the question, so it's rude. Let me let you answer and then I'll. I think it does. I think it does sway a little bit more towards the monsters mm-hmm. because you're also seeing at this time too, then you're seeing actors become personalities. You're like yep. you're seeing Boris Karloff become more than just Frankenstein. Like they're able to advertise him as just Karloff by his last name. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? So star power, the star power of what these actors can do in these roles. And I really think back to, I can't wait till one day when we do the original OG Frankenstein and mm. that opening credits with Edward Von Sloan coming out and telling the audience what you're about to see is going to scare the shit out of you. Mm-hmm. And you've been warned. Like, well, don't say we didn't warn you. It's part vaudevillian and it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's gearing up a, a, a audience that is still trying to get used to that people are talking in movies, right? Mm-hmm. 32. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many innovative things those universal monsters did for just filmmaking in general, not even horror. 
I mean, you can't you can understate it. Uh, no. And I, I think Bride of Frankenstein is a top three sequel of all time. That film's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might have to lean a little bit more towards that. Now, let me throw it back to you this way. Okay. If we do talk about these contemporary things, um, well, we do see, you know, the slashers in a way kind of in a bit of a renaissance right now, particularly with Blumhouse and this Halloween trilogy that I think has made a pretty decent bank for Blumhouse. Uh, if they told you a Halloween movie would make 15 million opening weekend, I would have told you you were crazy. Yeah. Um, especially when we talk about Halloween fives gross was like $5 million in its entire run. Wow. There's like a, a, a hunger for this type of thing. Right. So what I want to know, and we did see a tease of this, right? With mm-hmm. the invisible man. Mm-hmm. I want to know what the monster's place is in contemporary cinema because I don't know if we're scared of those same monsters the way we're scared of like these boogeymen that are in these slashers, this kind of like real world threat. So are you asking me which plays better with today's audience, like the classic stuff or, or I guess I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm just saying, man, where, where's the monsters at? Where, where, where are we going? (laughs) Yeah. That's a troubling question because I think the monster today ends up being not so human like, but more larger alien or animal like we get good monsters we've had good man good monsters in the last generation like i'll give you jurassic park as much as i hate most of those films yeah it's never because the dinosaurs don't look cool as much as i hate five of those movies yeah they're terrible (laughs) stories but they they look good the dinosaurs look pretty good do they they not yeah 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 we just don't see often a human version of that anymore and i think what's replaced them the human version of monsters Mm -hmm is the human version of superhero. Yeah. Because you can make the case that, oh, Whiplash, Mm -hmm. the villain Whiplash, terrible movie, pretty terrible villain. You mean Mickey Rourke's Whiplash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is rather monstrous. Yeah. And so I don't think the need or the desire for that role in film has gone away. I just think it's been replaced in the immediacy with superheroes. Oh. And for as much as that might be correct, there is one that's had a pretty good decade run, and that's the zombie. Yeah. Maybe the best run it's ever had. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Insofar as popularity goes. Yeah. Now, if you're going to ask me which has more staying power now, the slasher or the monster... I would still also probably say the slasher just because I think the true crime piece of American culture is so hot and has been for five or six years now. Maybe longer. Yeah. Maybe longer. 10 years. Yeah. Every time I turn on Netflix or Amazon prime, there's another another series. True crime doc, right? There's a Dahmer one right now. Yeah. Yeah. The Dahmer show and the Dahmer tapes. (laughs) There's And there's, I mean, the one that Fincher did that uh, mind hunter. Yeah. I like that show. I know you were kind of indifferent to it, but like, yeah, it's everywhere. HBO has its true crime stuff. Netflix has it. Uh, just even Dexter to a certain extent was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. there you go. So that's really still popular and that's real life boogeyman. Yeah. Now let me tell you, that's why I think go listen to three years ago, that invisible man remake that we did. I think that's why that film works so well is because Adrian, yeah. uh, the invisible man was kind of a real life monster this domestic abuser right who just happened to like create this technology that made him invisible and it's all about the gaslighting 
and terrorizing that he's doing to Elizabeth Moss in there. And I, th- they made it uh, feel real and tangible, like a real threat. It's two weeks in a row now we brought up that movie, right? Because mm-hmm. I brought up the sister uh, restaurant sequence as well. I think it's all an execution. Sure. Uh, and I think that was kind of why that Tom Cruise mummy didn't quite work and why the Invisible Man worked is I think they made it a little bit more relatable. And it's also the reason why I don't think the Godzilla stuff's really playing too well now is not like how it did in the 50s, right? Mm-hmm. When it's fresh and raw and very fresh in everyone's minds about the the dangers of nuclear power. No one cares about that now. <laughs> it's just No one cares about that. They just want to see Smash and it just gives everyone a migraine and no one cares. So, yeah. But pe- but there's always real life monsters, right? And I think that's why the this these cadre of three, which two of them are very noticeably absent in the current marketplace, mm-hmm. I think are still a little bit more relevant now. So the answer to your big question, Matt, and I'll let you wrap up with your thoughts. The answer is both <laughs> to me. Yeah. I think they're both wildly important. It depends on how you're framing and how you're th- what the context you're thinking of it in. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it. The word contemporary is the hang up there. That's the that's mm-hmm. the the hook, isn't it? Contemporary means to me in the market we exist in today, and it's pretty hard with the case we've laid before each other yeah. to defend the monsters having a bigger case than the boogeyman. Yeah. You remove that word contemporary, and here's my case for the monsters. You get our first look into the interest levels that can be brought about with the villain, might I say, anti-hero. The monster, Frankenstein's monster, is an anti-hero. He is a sympathetic villain. Dracula, in the novel form, is not after blood and devouring human spectacle. It's love. Yeah. The Wolfman, those are wrestling with the desires, the carnal desires or otherwise, that exist in men towards females. Mm -hmm. And then what does that mean to be part of a pack and all of that stuff that... Unfortunately, for the three monsters, I think does the least amount to really explore what werewolf means. There's so much territory. We talked about this on American Rough, so let's not redo that. But there's so much ground still left to be covered in that. Yeah. It's just that word contemporary. Let me ask you one final question. Mm -hmm. When we do eventually get to see this movie, the Gosling Wolfman, whatever, how much is riding on that movie to be successful to bring some blood back into monsters right well i would say a ton mm-hmm. because did you do any research on how far we're into production is it still in devo hell oh it's still in just like we'll film it when we get to it <laughs> yeah um look that's risky yeah i think everything after american werewolf the howling maybe is an exception like the first one not when it got into like howling four or five and wherever it ended up the silver bullet. Oof. Yeah. Werewolf's kind of a mess. So that's a big, big risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gosling's probably the right guy. Oh, yeah. That's great. That's, that's a great name to put to it. Mm-hmm. It just can't be Del Toro's version. I think it not, I mean, yeah, uh, Benicio Del Toro, yeah. not Guillermo. Oh, no, it, it can't be that. It can't be that. It can't. I think it needs to be contemporary, set contemporary, much like this new Invisible Man was. Uh, I think we'll care a little bit more. Um, yeah, I think that's that's it's a great question. It's a great philosophical just journey into three, six really important figures in the horror genre. 
Can I say one more thing about werewolves real yeah. quick? Yeah. <laughs> this is something I've been meaning to ask you about, I guess off mic, but we can just do it on mic now. <clears throat> what if this, I think we struggle with the story post-transformation because we've already let the cat out of the bag and now what, right? Yeah. What if the story is, okay, poor suspect turns into werewolf and goes about on the first night of werewolfdom, this killing spree, mm -hmm. comes back, and his his woman, whether that's girlfriend, mother, wife, whoever, yeah. contemporary set, yeah. like set today, yeah. finds out what he did yeah. and then begins to wrestle with this. If I turn him over to the cops, my children lose their father. Yeah. I lose this guy who's an excellent person 29 out of 30 days of the month. Mm -hmm. And all of the domestic issues that go along with being now single mother. Yeah. Juxtaposed against the idea of there's this terrible burden that I know that he is not even entirely guilty of because he can't control himself when he's in wolf form, yeah. but a participant in. And you take it from that perspective because, you know, now you're playing with. You're playing with, like, I think a lot of domestic themes. Mm -hmm. That could be from abuse to alcoholism to gambling to any addictive personality that the lover of the other has to cover up for. And I think there's something there. When do you say enough is enough? Because when enough is enough, that means everybody else's life mm -hmm. is turned upside down. But in the meantime, because you don't say anything, everybody else outside of your world's life possibly has and now, you know, red pants be up to turned upside down. And now you're playing with packs and yeah. And what about that? Oh, I think that plays. It's just, it's the, it's all in the execution, right? How do you want to see someone wolf out? Yeah. You build him a wolf bunker where he gets to just thrash around yeah. for two nights out of every month. Right. I mean, or do yeah. you just let him go do his carnage and then he comes back and you just sweep it all under the rug. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. If you got a, like a family component to it and they're just like, yeah, let's just be quiet about him. Let's not tell anybody. But then you bring in that Jack McGee element, right? It's, you always got that investigator character who's like privy to like, hey, something's afoot. And Don't he, make me angry. Yeah. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And he's the one that always screws it everything up, right? Because then he brings all the attention to, well, in American World, that was kind of the doctor. Oh, the doctor in reality was really trying to help David and kind of trying to figure out, man, why, why, what's going on with you? Why is everyone acting so weird? And Alex, we talked about what, what a great companion she was. I think that's what put the idea in my head. Yeah, so... It's all an execution. I don't know. Maybe make, let John Landis make this new old man movie. Yeah, why not, right? Yeah, why not? No, no. I, I really think, like, if you... Because Lee Winnell, the guy that did Invisible Man and did all the Insidious and Saw films with James Wan, he's doing that movie. I think you got to get, like, a body horror guy in here, like uh, David or Brandon Cronenberg. I would love to see, what like, the bastardization of not being able to control your body, what that looks like from their perspective. But it's a werewolf movie. Mm-hmm. Can't believe Cronenberg never made a movie like that before. Yeah, me either. I'm sure he loves these monster movies too. I'm sure of it. A Canadian werewolf movie. Come on, people. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's, we've got a ton to talk about. Let's dive right into our review breakdown of The Dream Master. Oh. Huh. 
I, I know, yeah, Kincaid's done dirty this. All, the, all the three of the original Dream Warriors are, are kind of done, but let's talk about the big difference here right at the beginning. Um, we do pick up kind of a little bit after Dream Warriors. These kids have gotten out of Weston Hills facility. They had enough of Craig Watson's bullshit. Yeah. And they, I think they're getting back into, like, normal life, uh, into domestication. They're going back to school. But there's a noticeable difference here, and you can definitely feel it in this first 30 minutes of the film, and it's... How come Patricia Arquette didn't want to come back for the Dream Master, man? I mean, that's... Do you like, know why? Oh, no, I don't. I think she's... I don't think no one's ever gotten an answer, but... I, t- I found out. Did you? She was pregnant. Oh, okay. I don't know who the father of the child was, but it's pretty hard to play high school when you're actually 26 pregnant. So that's why she was with child. Do you think it hurts the movie a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. That absence, that kind of chemistry that she had with those other two guys, Joey and Kincaid... Tuesday night, who I guess is a pop actor, a pop singer first, right? She sings the opening title track, Nightmare, that's kind of... Sounds arc- like Lita Ford. Yeah, ooh, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, I, there's a noticeable void here of of talent in this in this film. And it's, yeah, they couldn't get the, the main lead who kind of s- almost steals the last movie. Um, they couldn't get her back, so... Yeah, it becomes kind of kind of kind of an issue here of chemistry and who's our main character and we have like two and a half main characters but Freddy's kind of the main character too. Um I think we're juggling a lot with this film uh and Rennie Harlan and his second film effort. I did find out. I did not find out about Patricia Arquette, but I did kind of find out about the production of this film and after the colossal success of Dream Warriors, of course they want a fourth, right? So Bob Shea and is like we got to get this movie out like the next year, which I don't know why people don't take the, like, let's take our time approach. It's always like, we got to strike while the iron's hot, right? Yeah. So they need to find a director, and <clears throat> they interview this Finnish man, Rennie Harlan, who's weir- a weird, kind of a weird dude, um, really messy, kind of wearing, like, a really disgusting shirt, 6'4", so he's, he's, like, this really tall guy. Um, and, like, Bob Shea does, like, not want to hire him. He thinks he's going to, like, destroy the franchise. And he and Rennie Harlan's living in a hotel with a buddy. They're they're eating, like, uh, Campbell's soup. Like, like, really struggling to get by. And probably about to give up on Hollywood until he gets this gig, right? Yeah. So he gets it. And, of course, you know, Brian Hel- Helgeland, whatever version of his script uh, kind of went through. Uh, but something happened in 1988 here, and we're going to talk a little bit about this next week because it's going to sort of impact both of these movies. Um, and it's a little thing called a writer's strike. <laughs> so how do you write a movie when you can't hire any writer? So you're literally throwing stuff on a page to get to the, the deadline where you won't have a, a serviceable writer, right? Yeah. Um, it kind of impairs the production a little bit. Um. Not to say that what kind of what all here is bad, but you can kind of tell that there's a lot of ideas cooking in the kitchen, and mm-hmm. I don't know if all of it's necessarily working. Some of it does work, but mm-hmm. um, we can talk about that. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, could, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Can't be good for any production, right? A writer strike. <laughs> no, this gets to part of the issue that you know I sort of forecasted a little bit when we were doing the flight. 
Um, the monetary piece of this is such a big, big deal with these three in particular. When Nightmare 3 was finished and Freddy is essentially defeated and you have a cast of characters left, yeah. we're moving into a space that I think is really important. We're starting to get into that space with, with Friday and the Tommy Jarvis bit. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, we're getting into the play, this, this continuing of characters we've met and have gotten to learn as formidable opposition to the other character we really know, and that would be Freddy. And so you have more skin in the game. And you can see that when three ends and four begins, with the exception of Patricia Arquette, Mm -hmm. these three really have a big, important role. They figured it out. Freddy's done away with. They're back to living normal lives. Mm -hmm. And then you get the introduction of Alice. Yeah. Who's Alice? Yeah, she's just another kid here in Springwood, Ohio. And what I really want to know, just in the mythology of the Elm Street world, she's about the same age as Kristen, right? Yep. So, like, I don't know, like, once the end of the Elm Street kids, they're all done away with, these kids weren't affected by it. So, maybe I just, maybe I just really don't understand, like, Freddy's endgame here. I mean, he's really mad at the parents, and he's taking it out on the kids, right? So once the kids are gone, then he'd go after the parents. Like, mm-hmm. I just don't know why these other parents were, or, or these other kids were excluded. Like, so Rider Strike comes in, yeah, and we get no answers to how many offspring did the parents of the Elm Street kids, or how many children did the parents of the Elm Street cadre have? Like, how many is what victims are is Freddie able to kill? Yeah. Countless. Okay. Writer Strike is all about money. Yeah. And then the production at New Line is, we think we have a dyingly loyal fan base. Did you see what happened on number three? I did. We made a lot of money. I know, Steve. We made a ton of money. We have to get four out. We got to go in again. There's a couple pieces to the story. Fuck it. Who cares? Just get it out. They'll go see it anyway. Yeah. And you start into... Which is, at the end of the day, the answer to all of this is it was all true, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you get some pieces of what could have been great story moments to fill out an excellent sequel to three. Yeah. But instead, because the system is so overturned with money and still so driven by another one because we've got to make bank to fund this so we can do this and this movie's going to be the, the conduit to that, just get it out... It becomes, this is going to sound so stupid to say this in the context of slasher horror, but I mean it financially. Yeah. Exploitative. Yeah. I'm not saying I left the film and said, man, I just got exploited for my $6.50. Yeah. But if you even start with Freddy's rebirth, <laughs> I have a couple questions for you because you're the behind the scenes guy. Yeah. That dog's name is Jason. Exactly, yeah. Is that a nod I, of acknowledgement to Voorhees? You would have to say yes. It right? has to be. Yeah, it, it would just like some sort of like middle finger or something. I don't know, like a setup. Like, because they can't be thinking about Freddy versus Jason yet unless Bob Shea's that much of a genius, right? Because I thought about that too, and I thought, well, they didn't make the dog a female, which would make Jason a bitch. Yeah. Because the dog pees the way male dogs pee, a river of fire. <laughs> Now, let's break this down for just a second. If Freddy is done away with the way he was in three, like final series over, goodbye, it's done, that's it. 
Well, let's recap real quick. Yeah. In three, he was done away. Craig Wasson and John Saxon took the Freddy Bones to this junkyard. Who knows why a junkyard? And then they buried it, and then they poured holy water on it. They got him in hollow ground, and mm-hmm. then they did battle in the dream world, and it would happen at just the right time, and it destroyed Freddy. And in this one, <laughs> they're having dreams about, about him, and, you know, Kincaid gets thrust back to this same kind of junkyard. And, yeah, and then this dog just pisses fire. And Freddy comes back to life. <laughs> I get the fire. I get forged from fire. They burned him alive. I get the fire yeah. bit. What? Yeah, Who is I this know. dog? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. it's That had to have been a discussion that was either, look, we had a rewrite on how we were going to get Freddy back. And now that we're in this writer strike, we're screwed. What should we do? I don't know. Use a dog. Or, which that's not okay. That's that's not an acceptable answer. No, yeah, that's a bad answer. Or it was, fuck it, who cares? Just get him back. Yeah, I think that's the answer. <laughs> that's also not an acceptable answer. No, that's also bad. Now, you can schluff it off and say, well, slasher horror movie, of course he can't die, blah, blah, blah. The same things we say about all of these and move on if that's the only time it happens. But the problem is the holes around some of the essential moments in this film become so vast, what was a really nice wheel of cheese (laughs) has now become Swiss. (laughs) Right? We had a really good wheel. And instead of rolling, it's got so many fucking holes in it. Oh, man. That it's, it becomes transparent. You can see right through it. This, it, it and, and is on the other side of what I see, is it just the greenbacks? It, yeah. And I, I'll, <sighs> I'll take some Swiss cheese now by the time we get to number six and we got just fucking feta crumbs on the floor. Yeah. Like, it's just, dude, it's a disaster. So rotten, it's blue cheese. Yeah, it's about to get worse. But, you know, I... I we're about we're probably about due for another writer strike in Hollywood too, right? Yeah, yeah it's going to happen. It's going to impact entertainment across the board. Like it's probably going to get really shitty for two years, right? Yeah, unless there's some good stuff in development that they can push through. But like, um, it just happens, right? It's just it's crazy. The dog as this thing that oh, it makes no sense. It's Kincaid's dog. Yeah, man's best friend, loyal to Kincaid, and he shoots fire piss into the Freddy grave. That brings it back. Like, I get the fire. Mm-hmm. You would, whether you want to say he's being reforged or it's a callback to how he was murdered, all that works. It's so silly, though. It's just. But this, yeah. Yeah. And the dog only has the appearance of any malevolence prior to the scene in one moment when it bites Kristen mm-hmm. on the arm in the dream that she's having that she pulls Kincaid into. Mm-hmm. Where they basically say, cut your shit. We're tired of living in Freddyville. You're just going to bring him back. Leave it the hell alone and let us live our lives, weirdo. Now and the dog shows up there and then is in Kincaid's house. Like, that's all a big, big mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. How to get this thing going. Once I think we get it going yeah. and it, the story kind of figures out what it wants to do with Alice and then her friends, it kind of becomes a different movie. And it kind of gets a little bit better. But, like, yeah, this kind of startup here is a catastrophe. Maybe we didn't know what we wanted to do with the dream warrior people, and it's just obviously kill them off. I do want to know, and your take, too. And if I'm wrong, because, you know, I'm pretty privy about the Halloween's my series, right? Like, I could just, like, sleepwalk my way through watching those movies. I could tell you everything that happened in them. Friday the 13th next, like, I'm pretty, like, one through six, I'm, like, solid on. Seven through the the rest, like, I need a good review. This is the series that, like, I always need some refreshing, right? 
I'm trying to like remember about this house, Nancy's old house with the red door, right? Okay. This conduit of everyone's dreaming about it. All this evil happened here, but like I can't remember if in a later sequel it's ever explained. Like, like did Freddie live here? Mm-mm. Like, why such importance on a house that these characters have never been to? Now that Nancy's not in the picture anymore, um, and I might be wrong. I mean, Freddie might have lived here and done his killings, but he did it with the boiler room, so that doesn't make sense either. Yeah, I thought Freddie's house was simply that orphanage where he was the bastard child of 10,000 fathers or whatever that line is. So, Oh, yeah, the, the nunnery. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think he lived there. Now, so, in my uh, sour mashing of Nightmare on Elm Street, I would like this house's importance explained a little bit better. And Yeah, this... Give this house to Kruger, and this is where he lived, and this is where he brought the kitties back to, like, kill, right? And this is where Nancy ended up living, and it's almost like a, a haunting, right? It's, yes. It, it, and then it has a more tangible explanation. Um, and I know we were hard on part two a couple of years ago, because that movie's ridiculous. But that movie has better explanation about, like, they find Nancy's journal in the closet, and it's just like, oh, God, like, this woman, this girl lived here, went through this horrible thing, and now Freddy's trying to use me as a husk to come through into the real world? That's kind of cool um, uh-huh. here. Uh, uh-huh. Just like we want to like start killing kids. I think that at two, okay, there's a lot that we need to say about two that I think plays into three and four. Mm-hmm. If Freddie exists in the dream state, then what makes Freddie really powerful and provides him cover is the ability to take over someone and make them sleepwalk. Now they play around in that space with two a little bit because I'm not in control of myself and Freddie's doing these things. Why did that go away? Yeah. Because they're onto something there. Because then what you do is you expand the vampire's territory to not just night, but all the time. Yeah. Secondarily, after two, they had to have known other than that, this was kind of a stinker. Mm -hmm. And the vast amounts of money that it made, they had to have known. And especially when three came out in what, 85, 86? This is 88. This is 87. So there was a year gap where there was no nightmare film. That was 86. Okay, so we're at the cinematic apex of massive dollars being spent on slashers. New Line knew that when they did three, there was enough money and enough velocity for four. Oh, yeah. If you know at three, Freddy dies, then all you have to do is somewhere in there give the audience the knowledge that that dog was Freddy's dog. Yeah, yeah. Which is entirely preposterous. Yeah. But at least it's a callback to four that there's still some conduit to bring Freddy back. Yes. In four. And that's easy. Like even at the, at once you faded out on, on the original draft of, mm-hmm. of three. Mm-hmm. Guys, this is going to make a lot of money, and we're going to franchise this. Did you just see what what uh, night, what Halloween three? You know, blah blah blah. Look at the money that's coming. We can keep doing this forever, forever, forever. Yeah. Find a way to get, the, and we're going to keep the Dream Masters alive, the Dream Warriors alive, so that we can have them fight in four. All we need to do is figure out, and this is three. This is pre writer strike. Yeah. Something that we can latch onto in four that makes his return even a tiny bit plausible. I know, not fire piss. I know, yeah, I know Bob Shea's not a writer, but like that should kind of come from him if he's the guy that's just like churning this train along. Have some idea of like we should bring him back in this way because the writers and directors aren't staying the same. It's right. like it's a, it's a train and they get off and they get the new ones on. 
some idea of just a fledgling of just like, this is how we'll bring him back if we decide to do another one. Uh, yeah, and it's just, it's kind of the same too with paranormal activity, right? It's just, it's those same things of, okay, as we go along, we got to explain a little bit more about what's going on. I'm like, oh God, it's just getting a little more ridiculous. It's witches now. Not demons anymore. It's witches. <laughs> so let me give you something. So as, as Freddy eventually comes back and you heard the bit that he played where Kincaid is done in and the, and the, uh, which I like that shot too. Of, I do too. Of him going like, Freddy's back. And like, it's like this, like big, like almost like model shot of like this, like junkyard that's mm-hmm. like the size of earth. and <laughs> looks like a brain too. Yeah. Before it fit, pans all the way out. Okay. So the remaining dream warriors really have somebody after them now. Mm-hmm. That's our movie. Yeah, that's the entire movie. That's the movie. Yeah. Freddy's revenge on them. Mm-hmm. Why in the world? Yeah. Like I would argue to this point in the franchise, the least prepared of any of the opposition to Freddy is Heather Langenkamp. <laughs> in which one? One? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, know, into, I'm into survivalist now. You know what I mean? Yes. She's until we meet Alice. Mm-hmm. You've spent an entire film building Kincaid and the other two, I forget what their names are. Joey, Joey Kincaid and Kristen. There you go. Yeah. You still have Joey and Kristen left. Maybe you don't kill Kincaid quite so quickly. Maybe you just, I don't, I don't know how you go about it, mm-hmm. but you have to somehow, and they try in this kind of, to empower another opportunity for a survivor to take down Freddy. But the problem with Alice, and this is even after Kristen shoots her power into Alice Mm -hmm. and she learns how to use the nunchucks, which in fact she never uses again the rest of the film. Yeah. She has no idea. She's even greener around the gills than Heather Langenkamp is. How the fuck does she take rekindled twice? Yeah. Resurrected twice Freddy. So from the burn to first iteration of Freddy now to dog piss Freddy. Right? He's... This dude's hardened. Yeah, he's pissed too. Ha ha. Yeah. How <laughs> How is this girl? No. She doesn't have a prayer, Jesse. I like what they do like I do like what they do with this kind of bestowing the powers of the deceased upon her to make like almost kind of like a megazord <laughs> like right. Yeah. Uh all the powers combine and we make a strong individual. But she's so such a wimp like from the get-go she's so timid and tepid in yeah. her life with guys and just everything. And like, I don't know if the film doesn't do enough to like really empower her, uh, enough. Um, not like they did with, with Nancy or Kristen in, in uh, dream warriors in the last film. Um, but we'll, we'll get to some of that too. I'm gonna play a clip. Uh, I want to know your thoughts. Now, I, I'm going to knock Rennie Harlan for a few things in this film, but there's one thing I can knock him for, and I actually think uh, visually and dreamscape-wise, I think he knocks it out of the park. There's these sequences, this waterbed bit here where Joey gets put, where his like Sports Illustrated strim, uh, swimsuit model 
goes into his waterbed and is like tempting him. And remember, Joey mm-hmm. was tempted by the, the the naked nurse in the Dream Warriors, right? Then he got tongue tied to the bed. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of his. He, this kid's a little too horny, right? And it's just like his own like d- demise. And then Freddie comes out of this waterbed and just totally just disembowels him. And then we just have like a, a waterbed of blood, right? And that kind of over the head shot of just like the, the, the backlit blood on the water. Like that looks cool. Like, yeah. So Rennie Harlan, I think th- there's some stuff. I think it, some of this looks better than dream warriors in, in terms of like the dream stuff. Um, there's a pretty cool moment in, in the movie theater later where they like essentially built like an inverted set to make it look like, like winds pulling gravity into the movie screen. Like that kind of stuff is pretty inventive and I think mm-hmm. pretty cool. It's just a story that's just a complete catastrophe, but Joey's... I want to ask you about that. Like, you know, he's watching MTV, and, you know, I know you grew up watching MTV. Um, Robert England even said himself this was, like, the MTV of the Nightmare series. Yeah. Um, How does that work for you? And specifically the, the, you know, just, like, the kills and just kind of the vibe that that feels. This is a very 1988 movie. Freddie hosted a few segments on MTV. Really? Yeah. I don't know if they did it at Halloween, but Freddie would be on there from time to time. And uh, I think that's a really appropriate way for him to name this film, the MTV of this. Uh, yeah, it it feels sort of angsty, pre-media savvy MTV inspired. Yeah. And what I mean by that is if you think about a video, most of them don't make sense if there's a story. If it's just them on tour in this footage, that's a different story. But like if it's a video that has, you know, some Spike Jones kind of story sort of woven through it, it rarely ever made sense. But in the three and a half minutes you were watching, it was pretty entertaining. Yeah. I think if you approach this movie that way, mm-hmm. linear A to Z, fade in to fade out, I don't know if it makes perfect sense, but the moments that it's happening, the scenes themselves yeah. are pretty interesting. It's got its moments, yeah. So that's really tough. If you just like, I bet clip wise mm-hmm. on YouTube, yeah. this plays great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a hundred minutes, it's sort of disconnected. And like you said, you know, the writer strike clearly played into that, but I think that's appropriate uh, verbiage for that. Yeah. Very disconnected. My question then with Rennie Harlan is I know he's, he's pretty young in his, his directorial maturation. And everybody knows how to tell a story though. Yeah. You don't start off with a story once upon a time, there's a princess and the dragon locked her in the cabinet and da 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 da. And then we go, and then guess what happened? Lemon yogurt. I was like, what? And this is sort of, <laughs> Rennie Harlan should be savvy enough just with story by being a human yeah. to kind of raise an eyebrow in a couple of these moments and say, well, that waterbed scene really works. And I also like that we've seen Joey in that position before. So, Freddie is preying on his weakness. Hey, that works too, mm-hmm. because that's oftentimes how the bad guy does and the good guy is to highlight their weakness and exploit it. Mm-hmm. Like you and I being exploited by seeing slasher horror after slasher horror when yeah. they're not sometimes so good. Yeah. Exploitation. All that's there. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That's not, Jesse, that's not hard writing. I that's think- not hard. And like the other thing too, it's not hard writing because Freddie's dialogue in this was also really easy to write. Yeah. It is quippy one-liner after quippy one-liner. So they weren't spending a lot of time giving him hidden agendas or subtext. It was just, you know, 
welcome to primetime bitch. Not that, but mm-hmm. the version of that, that he says 15 times in this film. Yeah. Let's yeah. suck face. Yeah. yeah, he, it's, yeah his, his stuff's not difficult. I really think we're under the gun. I think it's the writer's strike and we have a, a deadline and a release date to, to meet in 1988. So we got to get this film made. I did watch some behind the scenes uh, documentary on just this particular entry. And that's how we learned a little bit about Rennie Harlan and then the actors and kind of like what they thought and all this crazy stuff. Um, but one of them said, there's two things I'll, I'll bring up, but one of them said, uh, I think it was some of the makeup people. It was like, I saw the poster for the movie before I ever saw a script. So like it's, wow. it's that much ahead of that in the machine. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the second one. So there's a fairly ridiculous scene. It's maybe my least favorite moment in the movie where the brother of Alice, I think his name's Rick. Mm-hmm. It's like a karate guy, right? Yeah. That's his thing. Everyone has a thing in this movie. There's the brains, uh, the gym, the gym girl that hates bugs, the smart girl that has asthma and then the jock and then Alice who's just a wimp. Um, but her thing is wimp. Yeah, huh? she's a wimp. Yeah, awesome. But then I guess she kind of like you know kicks butt at the end. Whatever. It's a lame version of that. Um, but Rick's scene, death scene, is this stupid karate invisible fight with Freddy, and everyone on the set was like, "Gosh, like this is so stupid. Like we should cut this scene." Mm. And they were like, "We can't cut it because we already shot his funeral scene." <laughs> so oh no. So it's just like, you're just like, you're so in deep that you just have to keep committing to the ridiculousness of the story. You can't even cut this death scene because you already spent money on shooting the funeral scene where he gets a, I did like him getting out of the casket. Hey, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of this harbinger of doom. But isn't, that's fucked up, man. That's just, mm-hmm. that's just why it feels kind of like all just kind of pieced together. Why does Kristen get a beach? Mm-hmm. I get that. You know, Rick gets it with karate. I don't understand why Kristen gets it on the beach. Alice did tell her what this is bad <laughs> explanation, but he tells her when I go to dream, like I try to imagine like a, like a happy place or something. So she imagines a sunny beach, which yeah, it's a happy. Okay, I'll give you that. Which whatever, but um, yeah, still not still not great. Reminds me of this. Who is it? Yeah, Landshark. Yeah. You know what I did really like, and I forgot this, so I forgot Kristen's mother. Same actress, same temperament, where she shows up. They're, like, at the the Nancy house, and she shows up in the middle of the street. Kristen, I don't want you playing around with these people and in these spooky people. Andale! 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 She's doing the thing in the last movie. Do you remember that? I Uh, do. That that made me crack up a little bit. But this mom's kind of a bad person. She's been drugging Kristen with sleeping pills in the food, man. Was this out of the sixth sense or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I think these parents, and then there's a bunch of stuff unspoken about with Alice's dad. It feels moderately abusive. Yeah. And they just don't go there at all. Why which, not? Which I wonder too. And it's just the, the, the true villains of Elm Street are the parents. Okay. Any capable writer sees that. I know. And you say, you know what we can really do to the audience is we can give them the version of Freddy that we've seen through two and a half films. And then as we get towards the end of three and into four, let's highlight the parents of the dream warriors and make them hateable in so far as they suck at parenting. And now maybe we're pulling for Freddie a little bit. Mm-hmm. Look, this is basic creating empathy for your protagonist. And it's the key to having, I'm going to rule over collateral damage, yeah. right? We've talked about that ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're on it. But again, I know we keep saying writer strike, writer strike, writer strike, and maybe in fact that did undo all of this. But that's I'm glad we're having this because 
watching this movie this time, yeah. I kept thinking over and over, oh my God, you have something there. Run with it. Go, you have something there. Go with it. And you just don't run. They don't run with any of it in no. any way that matters. They yeah. don't even finish their, they don't even get out of the starting blocks with any of it. Yeah, I do got to tell you, yeah, if if there was a rider strike and you and I are like at the gun to get paid, right? Get this script in so we get a check before we don't get paid for who knows when, right? I might write a four page long invisible karate scene just to get at, just to move on. Right. Like I can see how it happened is the shitty thing. Right. Yeah. You can see how lazy the the writing really got. But on top of that, I mean, I think it's still visually inventive. The, the cl- yeah. Yeah. The claws on the locker, like, and then the makeup is just really, really good in this film. And I know we're going to talk about that moment later in the film because it's the standout moment of the film. Mm hmm. John the meatball. Car- John Carl Buchler and uh, this guy Screaming Mad George, these makeup guys that just like, and they, they, they did a good job. And even like soul, uh, body souls emerging from the Freddy visage uh, at the end of the film looks amazing. Matt, have you ever seen a film called Society? I don't think so. No? Don't. Because one day we will do it, and it'll be a, a complete raw, raw watch. I guarantee you, you have you've never seen. I, I know I said that with House, and House was went its own direction and whatever. I'm still, I'm so glad I saw that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But society will leave you shell shocked and stunned on a, such a grotesque level. But the, the conversations we will have about it will be amazing. So we'll put that in the back pocket for another horror film. But screaming. The reason I bring it up is screaming mad George, which. Who names their kids screaming? Yeah. I'm kidding. It's a nickname, obviously. Yeah. Uh, he did the effects for Society, and he did the effects here for uh, uh, the Dream Master. Wildly inventive stuff. I mean, I think the the, the Freddy Finn uh, through the sh- the sand looks ridiculous, but I, I kind of go with it, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then this moment that you brought up. <laughs> Wanna suck the face? No. <laughs> Even in a moment with a character that's been very poorly developed, all we know about Sheila is that she's kind of a poindexter, she's really smart, uh, and has asthma, right? That's all we know about this person. That, like, Freddie preys on that weakness and essentially just suffocates her, right? In the dream world, that looks like him turning her into a literal husk, like mm-hmm. a skin husk. And in reality, it's her having an asthmatic attack and mm-hmm. dying of loss of breath, right? I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, it's visually, because you don't want to see in the real world and she's just like a husk in her seat. Yeah, the FBI are going to come and look at look into that. Like, yeah, you can st- still see how the adult authority will still be naive to like what's going on here. I think that's a pretty great moment. And, and her turning into just this vacuous thing of Sheila, it looks great. It's just, it's a really good moment. That's where this film really succeeds, mm-hmm. where you might be story compromised. They are not production compromised. You take that scene, you take the beach scene, you take the waterbed scene, you take Kincaid. I think that scene in, in the junkyard yeah. is really cool too. Mm-hmm. The waterbed. Oh, you said the waterbed. Yeah. They're great kills. Mm-hmm. Minus the karate, invisible karate fight. But yeah, completely compromised one. Yeah. Even still with that, that could have been cool. Like, I don't want to see Freddie show up in some gi. 
and fight him. <laughs> oh my God. But they would too. You know what I two mean? Two films later, in the next two films, they would do something like that. I know. Yeah, you're, you're right. All that really works. And what else really works is what they choose or what they chose to score it with. Like, I had forgotten all about Dramarama. Yeah. You know, we kind of talked about how last week in in uh, Friday 3, 4, that's almost legitimate music. On the cusp of being almost a one-hit wonder. Like, it didn't quite get past 15 on the charts, but I guess it was kind of a hit. Anything, anything by Dramarama. Like, this is going to be, this is going to sound terrible, but just, just, just check this out. Okay. I'm not going to be afraid to admit, I still love that song. And that's played during uh, when she's learning the nunchucks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's her, that's her brother's song. And so you take like Charlie Sexton and miss it, mix it with a little bit of like Billy Idol and you get Dramarama, who that's it for them. Mm-hmm. It kind of charted. It's still a great song and it has nothing to do, the lyrics have nothing to do with the film, which I also like because you're not singing the song to the film the yeah. way it's docking. Mm-hmm. But it's so distracting and so catchy, you almost forget like, man, is this dude really like working out with nunchucks? This is kind of ridiculous. And then you add to to get even crazier yeah. before she lost her mind, mm-hmm. Sinead O'Connor's Put Your Hands On Me yeah. that has a rap in it. So by 1988, mm-hmm. The Lion and the Cobra is not even that new for her anymore. Like she's had her Mandingo run and she's that Irish chick that doesn't have any hair. And she, how did she end up on this? This is before Nothing Compares to You and that amazing album before she lost her mind. Yeah. Those two things alone are kind of taking what Nightmare 3 did. And I hate Dawkins, but I will give them credit. Like that was legit music. Yeah. And doubling down on that, I think in an even better way, because as much as I think Sinead O'Connor is a lunatic today, mm-hmm. she had about seven years where she was really good, in my opinion. Yeah. And this is part of that. It's a pretty good get. Yeah, but and and kind of still sort of unknown other than like the fans of 120 Minutes. She wasn't a big name in 1988 yet. Like you knew who she was, but it wasn't like, hey, when's the new Sinead album coming out? Let me read let me read some of these other ones. So you had B- Billy Idol's Fatal Charm yeah. during the waterbed sequence. Yeah. Uh, go West, uh, Don't Be Afraid of Your Dreams. I actually kind of like some of their songs. Yeah. What's that uh, Vincent, Vinnie Vincent experiment? Vince, Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, that's played at the at the diner later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blondie's In the Flesh played also at the diner a little bit later. Like, mm-hmm. there's some decentest music in this, in this thing. Um, Robert England's right. It's, this is kind of the MTV of the nightmare verse, right? It's like right at that apex where like, that's really... Full steam ahead, right? Yeah. Music videos, we get it. Like, all these films not only have, like, their crazy marketing, but they also have, like, an accompanying soundtrack that has, like, music that's from and inspired by the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought a lot of those soundtracks. Uh, you know which one was uh, not a great one? Um, maybe we mentioned this on that episode, but music from and inspired by Spider-Man, uh, mm-hmm. which had uh, Chad Kroger and... Uh, 
Josie, whatever his face was, singing Hero, and I think some 41's on that thing, and mm-hmm. Errol Smith's rendition of the Spider-Man classic theme. Like, mm. we don't do that anymore, do we? No. Where's the music from and inspired by that movie? Like, that is just something that's just, like, gone to the dogs. This is what's frustrating because all the marketing is in place. Clearly, the visual and special effects there. There are moments where the story seems to really be down a cool path. And whether it's writer's strike or whatever it might have been, that's where you start to run into some questions. And again, whether it's the dog or whether it's Alice or whether it's this third thing that I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. If when Kristen dies, okay, she blasts a powerball through Freddie. Mm-hmm. And in to Alice. Two things should happen. Alice should gain whatever knowledge that Powerball picked up about Freddy through him along with Kristen's ability to pull people into dreams. That makes Alice very powerful because now we don't have to worry about how do I figure Freddy out? I have him figured out because Kristen just (laughs) gave it to me. Yeah. And we've seen this absorption, if you will, of powers from the people that were her colleagues or her friends. The problem is only one of them has anything that's worth a damn. And what I mean by that is, okay, so if she gets the powers from the bookworm, who cares? She needs to read. That's just going to make you fall asleep. So that does her no good. Mm -hmm. Secondarily. She gets the powers from her brother, which would be karate or martial arts expertise, which she never uses again the rest of the film. Well, she uses the fighting in the church a little bit later, but none of the nunchuck nonsense. And she picks it up and she's like, where did I get this from? Like, they make a big deal about, look, I'm getting these things. Mm -hmm. She gets the Kristen stuff. And you can argue with her boyfriend of about five minutes, what a terrible first date, that she uses that with him. But none of that matters because what she does Freddie in with is what's the title of the film. And this is also maddening. Yeah. (laughs) The dream master is Freddie's antithesis. Mm -hmm. And it's a rhyme, which is also something we've seen in the nightmare series. One, two, Freddie's after you, three, four, better luck, blah, blah, blah. But we've seen that. Yeah. So if you go to the dream master and this rhyme that he has or whatever his legacy is, which is wickedly undefined because of the writer strike or laziness or whatever. (laughs) gives you the clue to do Freddie in, then by God, maybe this is the answer to our flight question that we forgot yeah. because you're really going to use, and we'll give it away yet because mm-hmm. we'll get there when we get there. That's what does Freddie in. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll get there. Or yeah. should I just say it? Yeah. Uh, we'll get there. I, so none of that shit. You don't need dump chucks for that. You don't need to be strong for that. You just need memory. <laughs> you need to remember the rhyme. <laughs> you, you need frequency. Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. It's just, okay, we need to end this movie, Matt. It's just, this is me and you writing the movie. Yeah, 100 got, pages, fade out. Headed. We got to get paid tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that we'd be like, just like, yeah, it'd be a furious just right just to just come up with something and then just, okay, we just need to end it. We're like, we've gone on too long. We're 90 minutes in, just end the movie now. And maybe this is because there was such a crunch on time, but you know what we haven't seen, I think, in a way that could have worked in this mm-hmm. is... Alice's boyfriend, the guy, the hunk guy that shows up, what's his name? Billy? Dan. <laughs> Billy, Dan, same difference, right? Dan, of course, his name is Dan. Square jaw Dan. Dude, he's just like prototype jock, right? Just- prototype homecoming quarterback. Yes. Which, that's kind of who I want to take down Freddie. Yeah. What if he becomes 
so enamored with her that he's willing to go to these lengths to protect her and then sort of takes the mantle from Alice who never really quite harnessed it. And we get his battle with Alice to take down Freddy. At least then I have two versus one because there's no point in this film where anyone, and I don't care who it is, ever actually says, you know what? At this moment in this story, I really do feel like Alice has got a fighting chance. No way. She never has a chance. And Dan's like comatose for the finale, right? Right. He's like under the knife. He gets stabbed in the stomach. They wake him up. He goes away. Alice, I'm fading. It's all you. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, put me back under, son. We saved you. And then he's out. I would want to be put under for this. Like if Freddy comes for me in the dreams, man, just like there's too much effort to be dealing battles with wits and his one-liners in in this movie. Here's one thing I I did notice in in this watch through was this might be the first, and then we'll have to kind of see how this plays out. If this is the only nightmare film that doesn't really add anything to the Freddy mythos. Let me, let me recap. Yeah. Part one was, Oh, the parents, we burnt this guy. And that's why he's after you. Mm-hmm. Part two was uh, the discovery of that uh, the diary. But then they also discovered the boiler room where he did all the killings, right? That's where the finale was. Uh, part three was the bastard son of 100 maniacs. His mother, the, his mother was raped by all these psychos. And now he's got, he's, he was made from psycho semen. Mm-hmm. This one is just like, bring me. Solid, more, solid stuff. Bring me, yeah. Bring me more people, which I could work with. Like, I need more. So, let me play the thing. Yeah, yeah. What'll it be? Come on, honey. I don't want to be here forever. If food don't kill you, the service will. <laughs> the usual. My favorite. Which I think that might work, right? Heck yeah, that's bring, great. Bring me more souls so I can become more powerful, right? Unfortunately, that's with 18 minutes left in the film. Yeah, yeah. It's after the the cinema bit, which again, it's kind of a cool moment where she like goes into the movie um, with the popcorn and yeah, all that her, is a cool her moment. drink is so like, cool. like flying and then she goes into it. And, and the then, balcony is all her deceased friends up there clapping for her. Mm-hmm. So great. Yeah, that, that works. Yeah. And then this pizza bit. So let me just paint the scene for you real quick. Uh, it's a, it's a scale pizza about the size of this table with like animatronic moving faces. And then when they push in for a close up, it's like a gigantic made pizza with the actors actually in it. Like, I love that stuff. And yeah. then he eats one of the meatballs. It's nice and gross and disgusting. And then just says, "Yeah, bring me more." Like I'm, I'm hungry. Like, and it's keeping me, uh, uh, it's keeping me active. Like, let's, let's let's go. Let's keep going. And then that's when the wall bursts down, and uh, we see Debbie working out. When did Freddy need the souls of other victims to sustain himself? I thought it was revenge. Secondly, yeah. When did Alice become the unwilling mercenary? Yeah. Of Freddy. 
that having been imbued with the power to suck people into dreams from Kristen is using that to trick people to come into the nightmare realm so that Freddy can kill him to feed his insatiable quench for souls. What the fuck are we doing? (laughs) And all of that has no setup with any of the first three films we're doing. I, you know what? And honestly, Mm -hmm. I actually like all that. That's all solid story plausibility stuff. Yeah. But just shoehorned in like that makes me wonder, was that the production team, the directorial team, the the hats, the suits Mm -hmm saying, you guys remember that meeting about four weeks ago when we talked about maybe Kristen didn't know what she was doing or something and Freddie was tricking her? Yeah. Right, is there any... Fuck, they're on strike. Um, Rennie. Rennie, shoot. The, shoot how, the, how, we have an idea. How could you best write mm-hmm. that? And Rennie Harlan, the non-writer, is probably like, oh, I, we could probably do this. <laughs> I got it. We can just put it as three or four lines in this scene. Yeah. Which is too bad because... If that's the way it went down, it probably isn't. That's There's a solid idea there. Yeah, we haven't seen Freddy do that mm-hmm. really that way yet. He kind of did it in number two where he took over and became... Jesse. Je- yeah. <laughs> that's solid stuff, man. Yeah, I know. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just it's, it's so chaotic. It's just, it, when you're watching it, and you can kind of tell, but there is another moment I do like in here because I do really like this dream imagery and dream, uh, like, feeling that the film gives off, like, when Nancy... In the first one, remember when she got her feet stuck in the Bisquick steps mm-hmm. going up the stairs? There's this like really cool like time loop that Alice starts going through where she's just like, Dan, hurry up. Like, I got to yeah. save Debbie. And she starts doing it three times. And then they're both like, I think we've done this before. And what they're doing is they're losing time as Debbie's being turned into a cockroach. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like that works. Solid, yeah. But like that has nothing to do with the story. It's just like a cool uh, like just thing to do in in the story. So, right. Um, all the stuff that's really memorable just has really nothing to do other than it just being like that next moment uh, that we're that we're going into. <laughs> I don't believe in you. I believe in you. Can I, can I just say something? Yeah. That's the cockroach scene. Yeah. Think about that. Going, okay, so if this is the MTV of movies, like mm-hmm. the music video of movies, I want you to take what you just heard and think about this in the background and all the tactile awareness that goes along with her working out because it's already there to begin with. Let it keep going in the background quietly and have the two of them duking it out. Hold on. Play the sound on that again for me. Just try it up for just seven.
<laughs> Look, we're making new scenes now. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, so that is terrible in the film. Yeah. But individual snippets of like three to four minutes, again, really good stuff. Yeah, it works. Just, and that, that actually does kind of work because he's attacking the next group of teens, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that does fit story-wise. But again, like you and me are not great filmmakers. Yeah. That's pretty easy to put together just right now. And it was already set up because that's yeah. the music she listens to to work out. Yeah. Yeah, they should have kept it just playing through underneath all of that. <sighs> and put your hands on me the way that he, that just is so mm-hmm. perfect without it having to be, you know, you could be mine, use your illusion. Yeah. Uh, Terminator <laughs> 2. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But this scene itself, I mean, I think this is the standout moment, like effects-wise and just something like we alluded to last week. Like, we've always really remembered this scene. It's left such an impact on us. Like, with the cockroach, the the bench-pressing thing where, like, mm-hmm. her arms compound fracture and she turns into a bug. Like, that's just so gruesomely awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right, uh, yes. And I got to applaud Robert England. Like, I really, like, especially in Dream Warriors, it really starts to lean into the comedy and the one-liners, and he's kind of becoming like almost like James Bond and like, you know, like quippy this and quippy that. He's still fairly sinister in this movie, the way he kind of delivers it. Like, I know, like, I wouldn't want Freddy spotting for me at the gym. Like, no and way. he's telling me, no pain, no gain. I'm like, dude, I'm going to, like, drop that bar on my neck, dude. Uh, yeah. I think this works. Uh, just She turns into a bug, and it turns into the fly for, like, two minutes here. She's flailing around, and then turns into an actual cockroach yeah. in the bug motel. Oh, man, I, I love this, this moment. Is this movie the full acknowledgement that we're going... Action versus horror. Now. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it started a little bit in the Dream Warriors with the Wizard Master. Yeah. <laughs> and Karen and like, I'm bad. Yeah. But now we're fully in it, right? Like, we're like, this is like action horror now. Right. And there's a place for that. And I like, sure. like we said, like, I think it's working for us. It's just the story's dog shit. But Cockroach Bit, we've talked about it. What do you think of all this? Love it. Yeah. This is this part that has stuck in my mind so much so that I thought it was in three. Because I think I wanted to see it again so bad. Obviously, Man, it, it wasn't. Yeah, this sticks out as a... Maybe this is the most memorable moment in all of the franchises of Nightmare. Yeah, this might be the best kill of the whole series. And if this, if this was in Dream Warriors, it would just like make that film even better than like where we already think it is. Yeah. So, no, it's pretty good. But <clears throat> now we're going to have the final battle here with, with Alice. And she's kind of got all these little... Traits from all her friends, the strength, the knowledge, the karate, I guess. And she's going to do battle with Fredly, Freddy in uh, Fredly, in uh, this kind of church. And you have all these, like, kids, like, singing chorus. And, like, she's like, are those, like, the kids that, like, Freddy killed? Like, that's kind of creepy. Kind of, right? Because, like, the souls that get, like, unleashed later, they fly up to heaven, I imagine. They get in a nice fisticuffs battle, and then we get to the moment, too. So I'll let you do it, because you set it up so well earlier. It was just this rhyme, right? Yeah. Which kind of is, it goes to the rhyme of that whatever. It's kind of creepy if kids sing this. Now I lay my soul down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Like, yikes. Yeah, that and Ring Around the Rosie, <laughs> yeah, right? That horror movie prayer. Yeah. No Catholics singing that shit. <laughs> yeah, I forget what the chant is, but essentially, um, you would ask me to, do you have it? No, I do, yeah. Oh, here it is. You see, that's the problem. You know, like I record these and then I forget what's on the button. Down to the sleep, the master of things, my soul keep. In the reflection of my mind's eye, evil will see itself. And it's 
Okay. The moment's bad. <laughs> like, that's, like, really stupid and just, like, I could just see us in 1988 sitting and watching this and going, like, oh, my God, are you serious? Mm-hmm. Like, really? His reflection, it's a mirror. But then they go, okay, imagine this writing this, Matt. Interior Freddy's chest cavity. <laughs> Freddy purgatory and all these bodies flailing about like, God, that looks, that looks so awesome. And then yes. he, he's kind of spazzing out and his body starts growing and changing. And all these souls and bodies are like emerging from him. Awesome story. Horrible. <laughs> well, they even crucify him to the different pieces of the altar mm-hmm. in the church, yeah. which fits with his mom and the nunnery and all of that. Like this all works. Kind of, kind of the problem is, what got Alice across the finish line had nothing to do with what her friends gave her. Yeah. It had to do with the dream master. Who was the dream master? We've heard it mentioned or it mentioned a couple of times from Alice. What? Something she knew about. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So all you had to do and who would have known was do the same thing that worked on old Drac. Yeah. Bust out a mirror and show that bastard what his reflection really is. And that undoes him. Yeah. Oh man, that's such a bad way out. That's such a bad way it out. It is, but man, like, like, look, but we don't need another, we don't need awesome. It looks awesome, and we don't need another 15 minutes of this movie. So let's, let's end <laughs> All it. All right, that's fair. Let's end it. But yeah, oh my God, like the effects crew like came to play today. Yeah, the way he is strapped and locked into whatever position that is that is crucified like mm-hmm. to then have his mouth split open. Mm-hmm. God, it was almost sort of akin to the thing, wasn't it? Yeah. The girl with the corpse boobs that like rub up against the skin. So awesome. And they just start bursting out. And I, I, the way I interpret that, because we did see souls in the face at the end of Dream Warriors when he kind of spun around and turned into a blaze of lights, which that's pretty stupid too. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we just don't know how to kill this guy. That's might be. He's unkillable. Because remember part one? She turns her back on him and he turns into spores. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever come up with a good way to get rid of this guy. I love the idea in one is grab him, wake me up, and let me pull him into the real world where we can do him in again. Yeah. I love that. But then her way is turn your back on the monster. Stupid. Yeah. That's Johnny Depp advice to her. Yeah. Maybe this that's a franchise problem. We just don't know how to kill this guy. And to the remake's credit, I can't believe I'm saying this because that movie's a whole bag of mess too. Yeah. They do bring Freddy back into the real world in that thing, and then Rooney Mara uh, slices him open with a paper cutter, slices his neck open, and he dies in the real world. I buy that. Sure. That's okay. But this, this is pretty stupid. But visually, it looks incredible. And then the little bit of the souls, they all go to heaven. Thank you, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, oh, my God. And Dan's on the gurney. He just, we don't know if he's going to live or die. And he's hemorrhaging from this car accident and makes it through. And, yeah, they, they go make a wish at the wishing fountain. She kind of sees Freddy a little bit in the reflection. And was like, oh, man, maybe he's not gone. But we survived the day. We survived Nightmare 4, the Dream Master. And I have a boyfriend. Yeah, and I got this hunk now that she was afraid to talk to. So I guess that's an arc. <laughs> And it worked in 16 Candles. Yeah. Oh, God, Jake Ryan. Isn't he Jake Ryan light? Jake Ryan's kind of pervy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. Exactly. He's the prototype. He's just like a high school stud hunk, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, this is 
We'll have the most overanalyzed podcast on Nightmare for the Dream Master. Yeah. At the end of the day, like, none of that even mattered because this movie made bank. Like, if Dream Warriors was a hit, this film was the most successful independent film of all time when it came out until two years later when New Line, the little studio that could, turned out another film that we've talked about on this podcast, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Matt. Yeah, New Line's cooking with some stuff here. I mean, they might be making a lot of schlocky kind of just film. They're not making cinema, right? Mm-hmm. They're making films that make money. Yeah. But Bob Shea kind of maybe knows what makes money. <laughs> yeah, there's something to that. And whether it's Freddy or the Turtles or later, it's going to be a big risk on Lord of the Rings that's going to pay off dividends. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. if it, it wouldn't. It'd be the most profitable entry in this franchise until Freddy versus Jason in 2003. So Freddy fever was just at an apex, right? I mean, do you want to just say a little something about that? Not, go back to 1988, Matt, because it's just right before I was born. Mm-hmm. And what was it like? I mean, he was like, everywhere. Yeah. Halloween costumes. There was like probably Freddy toys for kids, like music, Freddy toys, Halloween costumes, lunch boxes, sweaters, it wasn't just, I'm going to go as Freddy for Halloween this year. He was every. I mean, he hosted a night on MTV. Yeah. That's a big time run. The marketing machine mm-hmm. is in full effect, and it's because he is really desired by the American movie going public. Mm-hmm. Robert England was on fire. Yeah. And of the three, he is easily, yeah. easily yeah. the most popular. Yeah. With, I think, generally, the weakest story of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh Execution-wise. I mean, I think if we take, we do this all the time, but if we take four entries, well, Halloween, we haven't done Halloween yet, but you can make the case that when we finish four, Friday's in the best place. You mean Nightmare? No, I mean Friday the 13th. The final chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like franchise-wise, that's in the best place, I think. Went out on top, yeah. And I would might, this might be in the worst place. Story, yeah, yeah. Story-wise. Story-wise. Financially. No, no, yeah, right. Different story financially. We're doing pretty good. Yeah, they're killing, it's, everyone loved him. Yeah. That's crazy, right? Yeah. He's our child killer, and we're going to put him on some pajamas that kids can wear. (laughs) It's just like, it's just bananas to me. Yeah. And no one's, Michael and Jason, as popular as those films were, like, they never had that kind of appeal that Freddie had. I think it's because he's a tangible talking Thing, right. right. I mean, he has a personality. They got the personification piece that the other two fellas didn't get the advantage of. Yeah, they're just like they're just like stalking, brooding. Around, stalking around brooding beasts, right? Yep. Ah, oh, there's something to that. I mean, it might the exit on the the end result might be just a complete just disaster sometimes, but um, yeah. there's something to be said. Freddy, 1988, and I think Freddy's Nightmares is good, the TV show I talked about. Yeah. Yep. Is going to come out, like, I think in the next couple of years. So, man, just like Freddy Fever is just going to continue. Um, but that that's that. And then Rennie Harlan. Okay, so this film comes out Monday morning on the documentary. They said this. He's like, I made this film. I, I was almost bankrupt. You know, my mom thought I was flunking out of Hollywood. And on Monday morning, the first call I got was from Steven Spielberg. What do wow. you want What do you want to do next? And the next thing he did was Die Hard 2, which is a sequel I kind of like. So, yeah. And then Cutthroat Island, right? I mean, that's just, we could do just a podcast on like biggest bombs ever, just yeah. pirate movies before they were ever po- popular. And it was a colossal disaster. It almost ruined him. So yeah. 
then he does long kiss goodnight, which kind of saves that a little bit. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a wild guy. It's just Rennie Harlan. Interesting career. I still love in, in our, one of our screenplays, I wrote a deep cut joke that only maybe four people would really love. And cause we had our main character in that film was this Chris Pratt type and his name was Rennie. And I had a line in there that I know I, I wrote because I came to you with such glee and I was, they get in an argument, these two characters. And I was like, you're a worse Rennie than Rennie Harlan. <laughs> yeah. Really poking fun that Rennie Harlan's really schlocky, right? So yeah. anyway, uh, what was your favorite tasting note? But we've been doing favorite kill of the Dream Master. We got the same one, right? I yeah, mean, we already talked about it. It's cockroach. Debbie. So good. Yeah, fantastic body work, fantastic set design. Look, yeah, just I even I even like the end of it too, where like we pull back and she's like in a roach motel, and Freddie's like, "You check in, but you don't check out." And, she, and he squeezes her, and a gush of guts pours out everywhere. Yeah, it kind of works. <laughs> totally works. It kind of works. Um, yeah, I think I got the same one. I do got to give some Joey in the waterbed. I thought I forgot how effective that was, especially when his mom comes and Joey, what are you watching your MTV for? Are you watching the thing? Uh, and she pulls the covers back and it's like her son in like this like bloodbed. Like yeah. I, that was like pretty gruesome. What's the oh my God! moment of the dream master? I think it's the end. All of those faces and the bodies that show up on Freddie's torso. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched it a couple of times. I couldn't really decipher if any of them were a particular character. I don't think so. <clears throat> Generic souls. Yeah. But even still, um, it matters a little. It just, it looks so good. And mm-hmm. it looks good today. It looked even better in 1988. Oh, that man. was that, that, that's, unheard of level. That's why you of went to excellence. see the, you, uh, these movies became and spectacle. The effects show. I mean, you went to see, gosh, how many more gruesome ways can we come up with? Oh my God, we turned a girl into a cockroach. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dog piss. I mean, that's just <laughs> right out of the gate. We can't even figure out a good way to bring him back to for some carnage. And it's just the dog peeing fire. I forgot about that. Like, I knew he comes back in the junkyard and kills Kincaid because I remember that line, Freddy's back. I forgot he was brought back that way. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Bad filmmaking. That's It's all time kind of bad. <laughs> like, it's for this fran- three franchises. Yeah. Later down the line, when we get into the shit, Matt, we can have really great conversations on like, okay, now what was worse? Dog piss or... Uh, Celtic ruins with Yeesh. the cult of Thorn. Like man, we're going to get into some nutty shit. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the, Oh my God for me. I can't believe even in a writer strike, a competent director or someone, a Bob Shea saying, yeah, bring him back uh, with uh, his dog, his dog. It belonged to him, the hound from hell. And that's how we bring him back or something. Dog digs up the bones and in the bones is the glove. Because we didn't talk about the resurrection, the Freddy like reemergence from bones into uh, yeah. actual living, breathing thing. Something at a Hellraiser. It looks great. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on the Dream Master? Mister Robert England, in my opinion, he has really got Freddy down to an absolute mastery. Uh, it's one thing to have quippy one-liners because a lot of action films had those in the eighties. To deliver them the way you did with the comedy that he did and the ensuing violence and to play it as straight as he did and so solid Mm -hmm. yet sinister. No one else could be Freddie. Yeah. And Robert England couldn't be anybody else. I mean, he had a little stint on V when they did that TV movie, which I actually kind of liked that movie actually. Oh yeah. V. Yeah. 
But, uh, you know, and he's had a few appearances, you know, here and there and stuff. But, uh, you know, typecast is Freddy, and you know it to his power. What, 10 films in, good for him. Yeah. Because he's the only one I ever played him, right? Jackie Earl Haley in, well, in the, yeah. the remake, yeah. which we'll talk about that later. Uh, great choice. No, I think I, I, I always wanted to, like, he's still kind of scary in this movie. It's one-linery for sure, but, like, he still has that menace. And, like, that's just him with the claws. I mean... He can't be like 5'8", five, 5'7". Five, He's kind of a short guy, but he has so much stature in his body language. It, he makes it work. Good yeah. choice. Yeah, I'm thanks. picking the trio of Kevin Yeager for the Freddy makeup, John Carl Buechler, and Screaming Mad George for just, I think thus far, part four has the best effects of any of the Nightmare films we've done so far. No arguments. Uh, they, they rock. It's just, if we're watching the movie for any reason, like you got to see how these people are done in, whether it's, asthma husk or cockroach arms or um, souls escaping the body at the end. Like this thing is really cooking with some great effects. And then just the, the practical stuff with the, the cinema scene and just the whole dream visage of it all. I think this is the best dream looking film of the four so far. He doubt does Craven. I think that might sound sacrilege, but like, I really think Rennie Harlan, I'm putting him in this, I guess a little bit. I think he outdoes Craven in the dream department a little bit. For all the kills, too, the part where she gets sucked into the cinema, into mm-hmm. that old black and white film is awesome. Yeah. And then the curtain closes behind her. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's good. Yeah. All right, everyone, we got to prep the pizza meatball scene today. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. How are you going to rate and grade the Dream Master? We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. All our rankings are based on whiskey. Um, where are you going with this one? Timing is everything. Yeah. Timing is everything. So in 1988, this was a really ripe market that uh, had a lot of power and uh, motivation and momentum behind it. So I think that helped because I think the studios were willing to finance stuff in the way they weren't prior. Good start. Tell John Carpenter all about that. He'd love to be in this position. Timing is also everything because if you don't have a competent writing team to get this thing across the finish line, (laughs) you have some problems. Yeah. That being said, this film isn't a disaster. You can do way worse with lots of other slasher horror films. I mean, way worse. This is easily still in the top third of all slasher movies, certainly for this trio. You can make the case this is somewhere like his maybe third best film in the series. I would maybe say one, three, and four in that order. Then two? Yeah. If we ranked them so far? Yep. Um, It's call. Yeah. This is just an average movie unfortunately Mm -hmm. uh it could have been the best of all of them including halloween one yeah it could have been but it didn't what could have been should have been and it wasn't yeah still wildly entertaining yeah yeah i don't think it's a i don't think it's a bad watch it's a very perplexing watch but uh they also have something figured out we don't need two and a half hours oh no you need a hundred minutes get in get out kill a bunch of kids i think it's get on i think this one's 91 Perfect. Yeah, they need to be... You might... uh, There's maybe like nine more minutes, a little bit of backstory on some stuff if you wanted to play there, but the movie doesn't suffer because of its time. It succeeds because of that. Call. Just straight up old call. This is just Gentleman Jack. I think I'm I'm with you too. Uh, The story on all fronts is a complete catastrophe. (laughs) It might be the worst story of all four nightmares so far, but... The commitment, England's commitment, the, the commitment to the effects, 
and to really kind of knowing just like what a dream world looks like, whether it's the repeating time loop or getting sucked into a, a movie screen. There's some things that really work in this thing, and there's some things that are just a disaster. So I if I did my ranking, I might go I might go one, three, I might go two, four. I kind of like part two as just that that movie's odd for a whole cadre of reasons, but um like much like you, I think this is it's a very enjoyable watch. I mean, it's just that soundtrack, oh the soundtrack kind of unique i was just i was kind of like gosh is this available anywhere this is kind of an odd collection of music i wouldn't mind having yeah (laughs) it's just we might have to make some just playlists and just like piecemeal it together so we can make it but yeah um yeah i'm with you it's it's call it's very it's a very compromised movie it could have been great but um freddie at the height of his powers 1988 i think a two million dollar budget and this thing pulled in like 48 million domestically. 2 million? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it. Let me give you the exact number. And I bet I bet half of that was on P&A. Wow. My apologies. 6. Oh, well, shoot. Now we're talking. <laughs> Pulls in 50. It's great. That's pretty good. I mean, then then Bob Shay's like, well, "We got to need another one. We need another we need to get Freddy back on the screens and then we'll decide next year if is Robert England getting a little tired of playing this character? Are we getting? Are we expanding the lore anymore? What the hell are we even doing? But yeah. we'll save that conversation for another day. Let's wrap up with our nightcap. Crazy. This <laughs> is crazy. Is he with Run DMC? No, that's uh, the Fat Boys. That's right. Can you imagine if Paranormal Activity ended with like a rap? <laughs> no. Part three needed the rap, right? Yeah, it did. They needed something at the end of that sure, nonsense. Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> sure did. Uh, we'll do that movie one day. I, we, I would like to like kind of like maybe not all of them, but like two and three, like at least because I, I think two is a good companion to one. I do too. And then three... Uh, what we could say about three is just with the, the, the two and a half hour podcast. We'll call that our catfish cast. Oh, there you go. <laughs> we could actually do catfish. Yeah. Cause that movie catfished me. Yeah. Me well, too. I, I saw that movie with you. Yeah, uh, I remember. Did, I, we do, did we do catfish? No, we did PA three. Did we do catfish together too? No, 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 no. We did yeah, PA three. Damn, and between so. that and Iron Man three, like I'm trying to figure out what you were most angry at. It might've been paranormal activity. Like, Cause I remember you were just like, such a proponent and like a fan of like that series and really pushing it and getting everyone excited about it. And yeah, that first one specifically and, and then two and, and two's great. And so I was like, I, let's go see three. Let's go see three. Oh my God. Liars. That thing, man, just the wheels fell off that train. That train just like went into a lake. Yep. Anyway, I'm still waiting for the bloody Mary bit to show up in that movie that I've never seen. Sure. <laughs> Maybe in the reboot. That's probably five years away. Right. Just watch the trailer. Yeah. Um, Okay, the nightcap. You know, Halloween Ends came out this last weekend. I gave you my brief uh, opinion on it uh, off mic. 
And, um, you know, the financial piece, I mean, that movie came out on Peacock and then in the theaters, it pulled in like $42 million opening. That's just, that's crazy. In, in no other world would a slasher pull in something like that. Wildly popular. So noticeably absent. And I know Friday the 13th is stuck in a very weird legal battle with the original screenwriter, Victor Miller and Sean Cunningham. And I think it's close to getting figured out where we might get a, a Friday movie in the near future. But Jason does, or Freddy doesn't have any legal battles. New Line got bought out by Warner Brothers. They have that. So what are they doing with the property? It just is there no interest? Because seeing what they do with Halloween, there's some interest, uh-huh. and it's all about execution. Um, so my question to you is: in the inevitable, because it will happen, yeah, and we'll cover it and talk about it and probably hate it, but. <laughs> <laughs> In that inevitable reboot, you mentioned a few times on the podcast, no one but a Robert England could play this character, but he's like 74, 75. He, uh, he can't. We need some new, fresh, young blood. Fresh meat. Who's playing Freddy in this inevitable reboot of the Nightmare franchise? You want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Adam Driver. He has the look. I think he's bigger. Uh, his face seems to look like a Freddy face to me. And... As much as I don't really care for Kylo Ren, that's not because he's not a talented actor. I think he might bring a whole skill set to this that is all the petter ass that Jackie Earl Haley brought forth that made that so off-putting in that film. Mm -hmm. Like, that's part of Freddy's deal. I mean, that is sort of his backstory. It's not quite that, but it's murdering children, so it's sort of tough to play in that. Yeah, I think Adam Driver has the persona on stage that can be understated, but also kind of large at the same time. He's a weird actor for me like that. Mm -hmm. He can also kind of play funny if you need to a bit. Oh, he can definitely play funny. Yeah. I think he'd be perfect. Good choice. I know you like him a lot. Oh yeah. I think he's top three best working actors currently because he was good in the last duel. Yep. He was good in the last duel. Did you ever see marriage story? Is that the one with uh, Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, I watched it about an hour and I couldn't do it. It was just so sad. He's that that was the at the end of it because you got to make it through to the end. Uh, that was when I decided this might be the best actor working today. Wow. Like he just totally. And if it wasn't for Joaquin Phoenix's pretty great performance as the Joker that year, Adam Driver's walking home with that Oscar for best actor. He's that good in that movie. Great choice. Thanks. Who you got? Do you have any honorable mentions? Um, Taylor Kitsch. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Taylor Kitsch. The pariah of Hollywood. Give that guy a franchise and it's going to die, right? Yep. Um, Sadly. Whether yeah. it's Gambit or... Battle, Battleship. Yeah. Or John Carter. John Carter, yeah, JC. Um, not his fault, though. Um, he was really, really good. I didn't watch it in the Terminal List. Really good in that. Mm-hmm. So it got me thinking about him again. He was in that stinker of a True Detective season two, though. He was. <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting. Like the, the real Hollywood really tried to make that guy happen, right? They sure did. Oh man, good choice. Thanks. Uh, my choice, uh, another actor. Uh, uh, the question with Adam Driver and my choice is: Are we going to be able to convince them to do yeah. a Nightmare on Elm Street movie? And in my ideal world, the answer is yes. And I'm going with the guy that has the look. He's got the voice. He's got the presence. And I want to see him do horror. It's Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. I just like to hear that deep voice doing the Freddy lines, right? Like, uh-huh. like fresh meat. Like, what, what, what would Cumberbatch? It'd be so like because him playing Khan in Into Darkness, like I thought that was really great. Like, it was a good 
Breaking Bad turn for a guy that's usually playing heroes, right? Sherlock, Doctor Strange, and whatnot. So I'd want to see him. That's not who I thought you were going to pick. Can I tell you who I thought you were going to pick, or do you want to do your honorable mention first so I don't... Maybe My honorable it? mention is, like, way off. It's it's okay. in left field, and it's like we're in the parking lot, but... I thought you were going to give Fassbender a, a run. <sighs> He'd be good, too, huh? He would be good, yeah. Yeah. Where's Michael Fassbender been, like... Macbeth was the last thing he did, wasn't it, with Cotillard? No, it was, I think, Dark Phoenix, which, yikes. Uh, but it's not his fault. Man, he, him and McAvoy are, I'll, I'll stay. Like, they're so good. I think they should, the MCU should bring back those two guys to play those characters again. Agreed. I don't even care. Yep. They, they were better. This is going to sound crazy. I think they're better at playing Professor and Magneto than Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. And they're good at those characters, too. Yep. That was just great casting. Agreed. No, my honorable mention is a really odd choice, but like I think this guy, like in in the right space with the right material, could give us a really interesting Freddy, and it's Daniel Radcliffe. Oh wow! Yeah, why not? I'd like to see it. Ooh, that's good. That's really good. <clears throat> I don't know if he wants to jump into like another franchise after living his whole life as a franchise, but what is hell says he got working right now? Like he's doing the Weird Al Yankovic biopic, which he looks really good as Weird Al in that movie. So I think he, I think he'd be up for the challenge, right? I like that one, Jesse. Yeah, good choice. Mm-hmm. And he's a little shorter too. Like he's mm-hmm. like kind of Robert England stature. He's not this towering. Like we pick really tall actors. Um, Give me Daniel Radcliffe as Freddy Krueger. I think that would uh, bring in those Freddy, uh, those Harry Potter fans. They'd be curious on what that would look like, right? I like that. Mm-hmm. Good choice. Yeah, both those are good. I want to see it. It's I'd, a franchise that I think is just sitting there, just like waiting for the right script and the right collaborative team to bring that to life. Good. Yeah. Nice. That's the Dream Master Freddy Part Four. Um, wow, the show is longer than the movie this week. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's like the deepest analysis on the Dream Master that's ever been done. Like it's crazy. Um, that's why I like. That's why I like. I like the show. Coming to you next week, we're going to wrap it up. Coming um, perfect weekend release with the Halloween holiday. We have to wrap up with the Halloween franchise and coming off the hills of the disappointing season of the Witch. Oh, Matt, the anthology thing—it didn't work. Mustafa Akkad wants Michael Myers to come back, and by God, he's going to come back. Good thinking, Mustafa. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. And Donald Pleasance. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Donald Pleasance starring in Halloween 4. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this crazy man, but... Yeah. When's the last time you've seen this? If any, if you have you ever seen it? Oh. Do you even remember if you've seen it? Yeah, I saw it one time, but it was uh, like a like a sci-fi version or um, like a television version, so it wasn't a good version like of it. Like a NMC or something? Yeah, something like that. I can't wait to talk about this film. I actually think it's a pretty good sequel for this franchise and kind of what it introduces. Um, and it kind of gets back to the horror of it all. But again, we're going to talk about the writer strike again next week because I know this also impacted this film. Damn it. And the writer. But I think they were able to get a writer that wasn't in the WGA. So he was still able to write during the production of the film. Oh, good. So all right. can't wait to talk about it. Yep. So to you, cheers. You. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go practice my karate moves, but I am actually going to use them in my inevitable fight with Daniel Radcliffe Freddy. <laughs> I'm going to get you some pads because I know the first time you bust out some nunchucks, it is not pretty. Bring the boom box. So you can play some uh, Sinead O'Connor for me. Put them on, put them on, put them on me. Just don't tear a picture of the Pope. Got it. <laughs> we'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening. 
to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, is property of New Line Cinema, Heron Communications, and Smart Egg Pictures. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. You can check in, but you can't check out.